Let's get scratching. We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up. Sega games, just keep playing them. Sega! We're back. It's the Sega Bit Swing Report Show. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to the Sagabit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry. With me is a special guest, Kyle Fegley, who is a writer who has worked on a variety of Sonic books that recently released, and he's done a lot of other stuff too that we're going to talk about. So, welcome. Yeah, thanks, man, for having me. I'm excited for it. Yeah, so you you reached out to me. So this is a first. I think I've done at least eighty or seventy episodes. Uh, you reached out to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird, you know. Like I knew when I did these books that there is like a really dedicated hardcore Sonic fandom out there. And I kind of had to go and be like, where do they gather? Cause I like, you know, like I was like, is there a place? And so I found the site and I, and I was checking the site out a lot as I was working on the books. And so it like put that on my radar, but you know, sometimes you find fandoms out there and it's just, okay, these people are on Tumblr or they're on Twitter or something like that. So it was good that like, there's a place where people who are into Sonic can congregate for sure. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a tricky fandom. And as the years go on, it gets more and more complicated and complex. Um, I've been to a few live events and it's, it's very strange because I feel out of my element, but then I see like a bunch of 30 something year old guys who don't look that interested in what was going on. So I'd walk over and be like, Hey, you guys like Sonic? And they're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's, <laughs> right. um, but at the same time, you know, there's like some kid next to me who's freaking out and he's like, Oh my God, it's Knuckles. And I'm like, well, you know, it's all, it's a, it's a very diverse fandom, especially, you know, being over 25 years old now. And yeah. so what I'm curious about is, did, did you have any like history with uh, the Sonic games or any of the media before you started working on these projects for um, Penguin Random House? Yeah. So like, it's, I'm, you know, depending, it's funny you mentioned that about the, the diverse, depending on who you are listening, I'm either an old man or I'm right in the sweet spot for, for the listener, but um, I'm 36. So I'm old enough to remember, I'm old enough to remember when the NES came out, let alone the Genesis. But when Genesis came out, I remember it being the system that came with Altered Beast as yes. the, the go-to game. Um, and then I remember the first time I played the first Sonic game, I was over at a kid named Chris's house and he had it, and I remember playing the the Chaos Emerald Zone after the first level, and like completely failing at that, and being like, "Why is there a maze in the middle of this game? I have no idea what's going on." Um, but that was what propelled me to get a Genesis. I had had a, a Nintendo, and I wasn't super interested in in buying the Genesis. And then I like saved up my lawn mowing money and like birthday check money uh, from my grandma and my aunts over a summer, and then bought my own Genesis. And at that time, they started packaging. Sonic with the Genesis. So I was in from the, yeah, from the very first game and both playing the whole original run of the Genesis games. And then also, um, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who maybe are fans of the Saturday morning cartoon, the original um, uh, one, but I watched that in broadcast and then read the Archie comics as well as an extension of that. And, you know, the freedom fighters in that cast of characters are really my version of Sonic in a certain way. So like, it's I've gone I've dipped in and out uh, of the games over the years, but my Genesis point I didn't mean to do that, but yuck yuck, my Genesis point is right there at the beginning for sure. Cool. Yeah, I, I started then too, nineteen ninety one. I got the console and bundled game, and I think the reasoning was that it was cheaper 
and it had a game. And those were two things that, you know, when my dad saw that, he was like, well, that, that looks better than the Nintendo machine. So uh, that worked in my favor. But that's interesting that you talked about the um, Saturday morning cartoon, because when I was growing up, uh, you know, I, I'm an American. I was in the Midwest. I was taking in the game, but obviously there isn't really much story there. There's the manual, but it doesn't tell you much. And so you had this cartoon. And at the time, as a kid, you had no concept. And I'm sure even, you know, fandoms like uh, Transformers weren't aware of the Japanese origins, just as like uh, Sonic fans weren't, they maybe knew it might've been coming from Japan, but the, the story in the cartoons was not what the video game creators even knew about or had in mind. And yeah. there was this, this, this split there, but the way SAG of America kind of created their own continuity and story. And then it brought in the comics, which were a strange amalgamation of the, um, the, the two cartoons going on and the games. And so to, to kids, you're like, Oh, well, when I play the games, it's just princess Sally's like doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I remember being a kid and being, you know, now I understand how cartoons are produced and that there are syndication packages in that. But I remember after originally having watched the Saturday morning cartoon and then there was, yeah, the, the, the kind of wackier cartoon that was in syndication and like seeing on the TV guide channel, whatever that was like, Oh, Sonic Hedgehog's on. I wonder if it's one of the, the ones with the freedom fighters and then always being disappointed that it was not, but never realizing uh, like those are never going to show up here. It's not in the package, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, as a kid, I, I just assumed the, um, the funnier one during the week was like a prequel. And so that's like, Oh, well, when Sonic met tails and then they all met their animal friends and they, you know, I, I think there was an effort to tell kind of a cohesive story though. I'm, I'm holding in my hands the, um, the first book released by Michael Teitelbaum called just mm. Sonic the Hedgehog by Troll Associates. And it's a lower, I'd say it's a younger age level than your books are skewing, but it's very strange, you know, like it'll kind of tell a story from the uh, Saturday morning cartoon, but then it, it talks about like uh, Robotnik had a tractor that he crashed and that's how he became evil. And <laughs> um, I've always wanted to interview the authors of these, but then I found out through a friend that the, the guy who wrote these, he doesn't remember writing them. Like to him, yeah. it was just a job. And it's interesting now that we have, you know, the likes of you, um, Ian Flynn and the Sonic Boom cartoon writing team. And they are very well aware of not only of what's going on in the games and in the past, but um, they are kind of given this direction to have more of a continuity. So when, when you, first off, how did you get the job with the Sonic books? So I'll tell the, the shortened version of how I got there eventually. Um, I, uh, so I, for years I worked in comic books. Um, people may know the, the website, comic book resources or CBR. Um, I was the editor of CBR for, for seven, eight years. And um, while I was finishing, I, I went and got uh, an MFA, uh, master's degree in, in Minnesota, for, specifically for writing children's books. And um, I got hooked up with the specific imprint of Penguin that does the Sonic books is called Penguin Workshop. And the way I got hooked up with them is after I finished my master's degree, I went to like a children's book conference um, with the hope of selling the novel that I was working on to, there was agents and editors there. And this was a conference where you got matched up with a, a, a an agent and then you could pitch them on your stuff. And I went, it was in New Jersey. I live at the time I was living, well, I guess I had just moved back to Michigan. So I, I went to New Jersey 
for like a one night thing. I didn't have much money and I got there and I met with this editor or this agent who they had matched me with and I pitched my novel and she was just like, no, this isn't really for me. And I was like, great. Like I've spent all this money to come to this conference (laughs) and it's a complete strikeout. And I was like, I'm not going to go down without having something to say for spending all this money to come here. And so I went to lunch and I just kind of picked a table that looked like it had more people who worked in publishing sitting at it than people who were there as would be writers. And I sat at the table and just, you know, started talking, introduced myself, was explaining that I had worked in comic books as a journalist for many years and and knew pop culture stuff and talked about my book and just kind of see what would happen. And after the lunch was over, uh, a lady who had been sitting at the table with me who didn't really say much the whole conversation came up and she was like, hey, do you like the Cartoon Network? And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm in animation. I, I know all the shows. I, you know, I like a lot of the stuff they have on. She goes, oh, I edit. Um, th- I'm the editor in chief of Penguin's license division. You should do a Cartoon Network book for me. And then she just gave me her business card. And that was that. And so, you know, within the next six or eight months, um, she brought me on to write a book uh, that is kind of like a graphic novel activity book hybrid of the show, The Amazing World of Gumball. Um which I love it was a very funny show. And, and, and I, I worked on that and had a really good experience on that. And then, you know, just like you do anybody who's out there who's done any kind of freelance, whether it's writing or web design or whatever, you know, you just, every few months, you just email out your contacts and say, Hey, you got any work? Do you need any help? Do you need anything? And I, there was a young lady who was an assistant there. She's since left penguin, but she had been one of the assistants on my son or my, uh, gumball book. And I just emailed her. And I said, Hey, Hannah, um, you know, let me know if you got anything coming up, if there's any new projects coming in. And she emailed and said, yeah, I've got a couple things. Uh, I've got uh, this new Cartoon Network property called Mighty Magiswords. And I, I, we just signed a deal to do some Sonic the Hedgehog stuff. And I was immediately like, Sonic, Sonic, it's Sonic. Just, just let me know about that. And so, um, you know, she had pitched that to me in terms of, of which property would you want to work on. And I told her, look, look, I've been playing Sonic for years. I know the comics. I know the lore a little bit. You know, like, let me know what's up. And so she was like, cool. And that was for the activity book of the two books. And then um, she told somebody else in the office, a, a guy named Carl Jones, who's a really great editor. Um, he was he was doing the chapter books and, and had said, hey, I got a guy who really knows Sonic. So if you're still looking for people for that, there he is. And then Carl contacted me then and said, hey, I also have another book. And so I ended up writing the two of them back to back last summer, summer 2017. So, you know, it's just a little bit of luck, a little bit of uh, pitching and, and being annoying and just trying to keep your head in the game. Yeah being in the right place at the right time too, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so you had those two books. You also had the race against chaos sticker activity book, um, which I has a little bit of writing. It's, it's not as intense as the, um, the books obviously are, were there any other books you worked on? I know some others were released, but I, I see other names on those and I, I don't know if you Mad Libs. No, yeah, it's mostly yeah, it's, different it's the Race Against Chaos, uh, Sticker and Activity, and then the the Tales of Terror. And you know, I um, like it's funny because when I started with them, they had been working on the whole line, and I think there is one that is like a, a guide to the world of Sonic book, but that was done by one of the editors in house. And then there is the um, Tales of Deception, which some places list me as the, the author as, but it, uh, that's not me. That's a guy named Jake Black who is a really, really uh, cool guy and a fun writer who does a lot of these books as well. It's one of the things I, I found funny, you know. Like I said, I got my master's degree and I write novels, uh, you know, children's novels, sure, but um, I write original stuff and I kind of fell into doing the licensed stuff and doing these character books by accident, which is great mm-hmm. and I love it and I'm, I'm, I'm working on more, but I've realized since I got into it, 
there's a very small community. There's actually a very small number of people who write a lot of the, the, the various superhero for kids books and the various chapter books and activity books. So Jake Black is one of those guys who's done a ton of this stuff and is really good at it. And so as he was working on that, um, I was like looped into a lot of the conversations just so they could say, hey, the Tales of Deception is coming out first. Here's what's going on with that. Here's how you know uh, like what we're doing. So that way, when you're doing your books, they can they can feel part of the same line, even though you're not directly writing them. So okay, okay. So when when you were working on these, did did you first receive like some sort of um, Bible from Sega or a uh, you know list of rules of things you can't do? Um, yes and no. You know, they send you. Um, they have like a style guide, and it is just a PDF that you could not attach to an email, you know? I mean, it is just this the massive file size, you know? And it's like 120 pages or something like that. And it's a mix of, here's Sega's like clinical version of the official canon, the official story. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there of, um, uh, you know, here's the history of the character, not in terms of the, the lore, but in terms of when the first game came out and the names of all the designers and that, in case you didn't know that. Um, but most of the style guide is actually all the visual elements, because this goes to us who are doing publishing things, but it also goes to anybody who's making Sonic t-shirts, Sonic toys, Sonic lunchboxes, and it's both you know key character images and character poses, but it's also a lot of just the graphic design elements. Here's the fonts that you're supposed to use. Here's the color schemes that you're supposed to stick with, um, stuff like that. And so for the activity book, um, they kind of told me, hey, um, you know, a lot of these books budget is kind of limited. So you can't say, I need you to draw this specific thing or a, a new vehicle that Eggman has come up with. And it's got to be 20 feet tall and blah, blah, blah. They say, no, like use the materials in the style guide. So when I would go through and I would write my script, I would say, okay, page one, uh, it's got a game board on it. Uh, in the upper left corner, you're going to put Sonic as in style guide, page 35 image, S O N dash three, four, two, five or whatever. So I would go through and kind of pick all of the key poses and all of the character uh, poses and stuff. And there was a few things where I'd be able to say, uh, you know, like there's some coloring pages in there and I'd say, Hey, do we have any of the chaotics in black and white? Can we get that? So it's a coloring page or are they only in color? And they would go back to Sega and Sega had some other stuff in kind of the archives that they could pull out. So a lot right. of that book was really, here's the big guide, uh, you know, pull out whatever you can, etc. Um, but conversely, um, when it came to the Tales of Terror book, literally Carl, my editor, all he said was, okay, so the first book is Tales of Deception, and we want to do another book that's like that, that's three short stories, and it's Tales of blank. What do you want to do? And so I'm a big Halloween guy. I'm a big horror story guy. And so I was like, hey, let's do Tales of Terror and do like a Halloween book. And he was like, that's perfect. It's going to come out in the fall. Do whatever. And there, there was all – at the initial stage, it was completely my pitch. I came up with all three stories – you know, eventually, as I wrote the scripts, we sent them to people from Sega Japan. And actually, everything I wrote had to be translated into Japanese. And then they would read it over there and they would go through and give notes. And then it would be sent back and translated back into English. So sometimes wow. the back and forth was a little confusing um, just because of that. Like, I remember one thing that, that my editor told me was like, hey, I'm going to send you these notes, but don't take it personally. Every time they had a note of something they needed to change, it starts out by saying, this is unacceptable. But oh, I don't boy. think he, he was like, I don't think they're really trying to be mean. I think the translator, like, that's just what he put on there. Anytime there was a note, this is unacceptable. So like, don't take it personally. Cause for the most part, they, I got really positive feedback uh, from Japan on all that stuff. But 
Yeah, so it was weird to have the two projects. One, which was very much, you've got this amount of pages, you've got this uh, number of images that you can use, and the other one was like, do anything you want so long as it hits this word count and we'll have somebody draw it. Interesting, okay, huh. And so I'm looking through the, the um, activity book right now, and one thing I'm noting is that it seems like the earliest uh, 3D games that are being referenced are Sonic Unleashed. And it's it's heavily hev heavily referenced in here too. It's used a lot in this book, which kind of surprised me. I know they're not um, like pushing that game aside or anything, but I'm not seeing much about like Sonic Colors, Sonic. Um, what else came out? Lost World. I know Forces wouldn't be in here because it was too recent. Is yeah, there yeah. any? Were those in the style guide, or did you just choose what you felt comfortable with? Yeah. Um. Actually. Um. The thing that was in the style guide the most was that, you know, you, I only got so many Sonic poses. I mean, I think, and like, there's more of Sonic than anyone else. I think, you know, maybe there's like 25 Sonic poses, 12 Tails poses, 12 Knuckles poses, and then you get down to the Chaotix and there's one or two maybe for all those characters. But when you're writing this book and you've got, you know, 60 pages or whatever, actually I think it's less than that. I think it's like 35 pages or 32 pages. Um, so I've got X amount of pages and I didn't want to use... Um, more, I didn't want to use the same Sonic poses over and over again. I wanted to use, if I got 25 Sonic poses, I want all 25 of them to go in the book. And so one, you know, the Unleashed one just happened to be in there. You know, there was three or four different versions of the Werehog. Um, and I thought, okay, and I, maybe it was because that style guide was made relatively recently after Unleashed came out, which I think was part of it, because you're right, like some of the stuff, like Colors was out at that point I was working on the book, but I mm -hmm. don't think they had taken a lot of the the characters and the badniks and stuff from that game and put it in the style guide yet. So I kind of said, okay, I've got three pictures of the werehog. So like, let me use this on a few pages. And, you know, I, you know, and part of the way I did the book was, um, what are the cool activities that I think kids will want to do? Um, uh, you know, there's one page on there. One of the, the puzzle pages is the, the classic, restaurant uh, placemat game where you've got the different dots and you've got to draw a line and then the next person takes a turn and is like, okay, who can make boxes? And if you make a box around a Chaos Emerald, that gives you X amount of points. And if you make a box around a Badnik, that's X amount of points. Like mm. literally the, the, the week I started the book, I went, I took my daughter who was two at the time um, to Big Boy, which is a restaurant chain we have here, uh, particularly in Michigan. And that was on the placemat she was eating on. And I just, I took an extra placemat as we were walking out and folded it up my pocket and put it in there. And I was like, okay, Remember, here's an activity I can use that, like, because I was trying to find activities that you couldn't do in, in one second or whatever. I didn't want them to all to be, here's a maze. Oh, I've done the maze, and now right. that's, the, that's the last page of the book. I wanted a lot of game boards. I wanted, like, riddles. I wanted things that were, like, here are writing prompts to make up your own Sonic story. So that way, if a, if a parent bought that for a kid, they'd get a little longevity out of the book. It wouldn't be a kind of book that you could sit down and do in 10 minutes and then walk. But one of the ones that I, I remember liking when I was a kid was, here's one image and here's another image and draw the image that's in between the two. Like I read, remember I was a big drawer when I was a kid. And so I was like, okay, I've got a Sonic pose here. I've got a Werehog pose here. Let's do that. You draw the transformation. Let a kid draw like Sonic's arms bulging up or the claws coming out or, or you know, like a classic kind of werewolf type of thing. So, right. um, so yeah, so it was kind of like form follows function. I've got these kinds of materials to work with. What can I do with it? What can I create out of it? Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And, I, I, my guess is that the style guide probably came out around the 20th anniversary and they really wanted to focus on generations and probably didn't want to focus on uh, the 2006 game. 
and and maybe also the Nintendo exclusivity of the other games that I mentioned that aren't in the book. Maybe that played a part. I'm not sure, but it's just something. No, yeah. I, yeah. I'm always yeah. I'm always interested in those those strange little things that um, either come down from Sega of Japan. Uh, for example, there's no humans referenced outside of Eggman in the kids' books, correct? Um, yeah, but one of the things is I think that um, it's that's not like it's like a, a dictate that Sega asks for. But you know, I, I know the other writers got this stuff too. When you get that style guide, it only has Sonic, Amy, Knuckles, the Chaotix. I mean, it has all of the animal characters, yeah. and I think you know part of that is like they're the playable characters in the games. And so then again, you know, when you're thinking about like, okay, is this going to be used for a, a t-shirt? Is this going to be used for a poster? Is, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff is made into products first. And then us doing publishing is like a small percentage of all the, the kind of material that gets culled right. from these style guides. And so I think, yeah, it's more a, a thing of a lot of the people who are casual fans might not know the human characters. And so they don't get uh, uh, put to the forefront. Yeah. That makes sense too. Yeah. I don't think a style guide would include like uh, professor pickle, the um, like 80 year old, uh, you know, historian, <laughs> you know, you're not going to see that, but I, I think last I heard uh, from his both Azuka and from Aaron Weber at Sega is that the animal world and the human world are separate worlds that merged at one point and Sonic mm -hmm. jumps between them. And so it's kind of a quasi shared world. And so that, that explains why sometimes there's humans, sometimes there, there isn't. And I think they haven't ex shown humans for about 10 years now. So I, it would make sense that they wouldn't really, even if, if you did include them, they might say, make this an animal or something. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the first book. We have Tales of Deception. What, um, because you said that name came to you, that wasn't something that you created, correct? Well, no, yeah. I mean, the the, the deception book was written by Jake, and that. So yeah, so that's one I just mostly uh, I I read at the out. I mean, at the outset, and just kind of whatever. So I'm not sure the origin right. of that or those stories, but I mean, I I do think it was they came up with a format. They didn't want to do a full novel. They wanted to do something that was more along the lines of short stories. And so they just had to come up with a theme. And so it was really, it was really nice to read Jake's version of those stories at the outset, because it gave me an idea of what they were going for in terms of length and in terms of the variety of stories that were kind of going on in there. Because, you know, when you're doing three stories like that, you don't want it to be the same villain every time. You don't want mm -hmm. every story to be Eggman. You don't want every story to have the same setting. And so, yeah, that was one thing that I took a lot from that first manuscript was, okay, let's try to get like a wide range of, of Sonic stories in here. Right. And sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to make it sound like you wrote this one. I meant in the sense that oh, yeah. um, this one came and then the second one was, you know, kind of borrowing the format of it. But um, did you, did you have any like feeling like you had to pick up any um, uh, threads left in Tales of Deception into Tales of Terror? It was pretty episodic, I'm assuming. No. Yeah. Like it, it, it they're pretty individualized. And I think the other thing that is, um, really um uh that i learned from reading those books was that it was like okay like you were saying about like okay is there a human world is there a, is there an animal world how do these things cross over like the the base uh that that sega kind of gave was um and i think it's the the 2006 uh you know um when they did the the, the i think it was 2006 when they did the redesign and, and you know yes. sonic got a little taller and and that they were like okay this is ground zero right and so long as you're not telling any stories that contradict 
that kind of baseline canon that we set as this is the standard canon going forward, that's what you want to do. And so, yeah, so that was one of the things that they kind of said right away was, because like com compare it to the, the activity book, one of the things that I tried to do, and I wonder if anybody actually picks up on this in the activity book or not, but if you actually sit there and read all the little descriptions in the activity book, I tried to structure the activities in the order of the original Sega game, right? You start in the Green Hill Zone, and then as you move along, you go into the chemical zone, chemical plant zone, and the and the casino night zone, and some of the zones from the, the first couple games, and and kind of uh, uh, get different emeralds in the same order and facing the same villains as you would in the original games. Right. And so when it came to the short stories, I was saying, okay, like I know that like this is what's canon. What can I do that like plays with that, but doesn't necessarily contradict any of that, but doesn't say, okay, and now this city's been blown up and you'll never see it in a game again. You know, it's, it's kind of threading this little needle to make sure that like you're doing something cool and original without going way far out from where you start. Right, of course. And something I did notice that, you know, the Tales of Deception book, I've read a few stories in it. Um, I feel like your stories, and this is no knock, no knock on Jake Black, are more in tuned with the games and what's going on in that. Like it feels more like something I'd read in the modern IDW comics, just sure. beca just because you know, um, you know, there's like a doppelganger of Sonic with an eye patch, and you know, it's it's pretty wild and all. But when you get into the Tales of Terror book, you open it up, and the very first story like features Big the Cat immediately. Yeah, and that, <laughs> that's um, that's kind of something I wouldn't expect just looking at the cover and and kind of seeing Sega's current output of um, content, you'd think, you know, there might be like big and cream. No, 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 don't put them at the forefront of the, the, the <laughs> intro to the story. They're the, they're the characters we don't talk about that much. Um, but that's interesting. So did you feel like you had some sort of, maybe you were going to test yourself or, or something by making these choices that might not be expected, maybe to surprise people reading the book for the first time? Yeah, I, it's really weird. I wanted to make sure, um, you know, it, it, it's you want to do two things. You want to make sure that a young person who maybe has played a Sonic game or maybe even just knows Sonic from a cartoon or whatever, but doesn't really know the. You want to make sure that they can pick it up and read it and say, "Hey, this is just a cool story." But you also want to make sure that somebody who's really into it and has been into it for a long time is like, "Oh yeah, I know where this fits," or "I know how these characters work." And so it's it's kind of trying to do both things in that and. You know, like I said, I'm a huge, and I know nothing about this. So if somebody's out there, I don't want to create any internet conspiracy theories. <laughs> but like, I don't know the status of like the Freedom Fighters characters from Saturday AM that were in Archie comics for so long. But you know, like, if I could have done anything, I would be like, oh yeah, let me just do a bunch of those stories. But like, obviously, you know, Sega's like, hey, here's the style guide. Start with the 2006 game. Like, use that as your your guideline for the world. And obviously, those characters aren't in it. But yeah. one of the things that I really like about Saturday AM that I think ports to the, the modern continuity is that Sonic's on a team and that you get his personality a lot more clearly when he's got other characters to play off, when you see him coming mm. in and do stuff. And when you read the first story in the Tales of Terror book that I did, like, here's the rest of the team. And it's like, okay, who do I know has been in that 2006 game? Who was in the style guide? Okay, Big and Cream are there. You know, we can Amy's there. We can use some of them and they're fighting this thing and then sonic comes in at the last minute he doesn't get dirty by anything and then he's like all right cool i did that i'm out you know and so like you get to see 
his personality a lot more playing off the others than you would if it was just all him by himself doing something. And so that was kind of that goal was like, okay, how can I build a team dynamic and let him be a part of it? That's interesting. You should bring that up. I wanted to talk about the characterization of Sonic. I know that coming into these books, writing them, sometimes, you know, someone maybe back in the nineties, like the uh, title bomb books might not really put too much thought, no offense to the guy, but you know, like coming into it with yeah. no knowledge of the series, he might just start writing, you know, let's see, well, Sonic's cool, he's rude, he's fast. All right, let's roll with that. But I feel like there's more to the character than that. And you'll find in the Sonic fandom, there are people who have a preferred way that the character, you know, sounds with certain voice actors and, and acts. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny, you'll have these kids who are, you know, in their early teens, maybe even grade school, and they can sniff out what kind of feels like Sonic and what doesn't. And you you wouldn't think that. You'd think, oh, well, look, he's being fast and cool. Why why can't you kids roll with it? But, um, but you know, and I think you teach uh, children's book writing, correct? Yeah, I teach um, classes. I teach at Eastern Michigan University. And um, the classes I teach are, are like... It's weird. It's a weird mix. It's uh, classes in the study and the history of children's books because a lot of a lot of my students are people who want to be elementary school teachers, mm. and so I teach them about what children's books they want to keep in their classroom and stuff. But I have a lot of students who come in who also want to write children's books, and so even though my classes aren't creative writing classes, I end up getting a lot of students who come in, and then after they realize, oh wait, you actually write these. They'll like come into office hours and be like, can you read my novel? Can you give me some notes mm. on this? Can you tell me how to get an agent? You know, so yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird mix there, yeah. And so I guess something you could maybe agree with me on is that when you're writing these books, uh, kids can sniff out BS from real yeah. stories being told to them. Um, yeah, totally. They're, they, I, kids are, yeah. I say this all the time, kids know what they like and they know what they don't. Mm -hmm. And they'll they'll tell you, they will not, pretty it up at all if they think it sucks they're just gonna be like this sucks this did not work and that's one of the best things about writing for kids is that you get a pure honest response that has no politics or no you know the kids don't have this idea of and we see this i don't i don't think i see this a lot in sonic fandom per se but like in some fandoms online they'll be saying oh well this is the proper way to do this or i have this whole expanded reason why these characters should be together or whatever right. um but but young people kids they have much more visceral just like it works or it doesn't work like that's it type of response to things. Right, of course. And so when you're enter, you know, when you're writing these books, I feel like I, I I think I know that when you're coming in here, you know that you need to actually nail the characterizations and not just present a bunch of characters who come off as cool and witty and, and speedy. And yeah. and it's it's difficult to do. And I don't think people realize that because like I said, I, I read a lot of the kids I obviously I was a kid and I read kids books. And looking back, I know which ones were bad and which ones were good. And yeah. like I said, there's some Sonic ones, um, no knock on the authors that I just didn't like. Like, why are why is Robotnik driving a tractor? Like, why is that <laughs> his his tractor broke and that's why he's evil or something like that? And it just seems so weird and misguided. But you know, I'm certain when you're coming into it with no materials, you're just like, how to get evil? Let's write a funny tractor story because it came from my you know youth or something. So in, yeah. in your case. <laughs> When you're writing Sonic, like how, how would you boil down his characterization if you were to just describe him to me, but without saying, you know, it's Sonic, he's speedy and blue? Like, how would you describe him? Well, I think, you know, the thing that I really lit upon is this is a character who is 
self-confident to the point of cockiness. Mm -hmm. But there is a flip side to that coin, which is that when, when sometimes when you focus so much on yourself or you're a little self-aggrandizing, um, if something goes wrong, you, you take the responsibility on that twice as hard, right? You know, one thing that I always see, that I, that the way I think of the character is, here's a guy who comes in and he's flipping and is like, I'm totally in control. But then he has a, like, a really expansive sense of responsibility, which mm -hmm. is one of the, the kind of fun dynamics because it seems like he's being kind of jerky at first when he's talking to the other characters or his friends. But then he is powerfully dedicated to helping them out, even at risk of himself. And so that's, I think a lot of the, the great Sonic stories kind of have that kind of arc where he comes in at first and you think he doesn't care, but then you see through the action of the story that he really, really, really cares and is willing to kind of throw himself on the fire or sacrifice himself to get the job done so somebody else doesn't have to get hurt. That's, yeah, that that that's a good way to boil down his personality. I I definitely agree. I think when he's written correctly, he can come off as an Annoying, but not in the sense of, and this is again, no knock on the upcoming Paramount movie, but I feel like they're going to go more cocky, wise ass kind of um, characterization. I don't know that, but I'm hoping they don't. I feel like when he's depicted well, he knows that he can do it. Other people don't think he, other people think he's being a little too sure of himself. And so, for example, and I saw this in the um, in the weekday cartoons, and I think the Saturday one too, where something would be happening, and it would be like, "Sonic, look, something's happening. You better run over there." And he's like, "Yeah, but I'm so fast. I'll get there before they actually really need me." And it's like they're going to hit the pavement in ten seconds, and Sonic will be like, "Yeah, but I can get over there in five seconds." Yeah. And then he does yeah. it, and he and he succeeds, and he's like, "Why? Why did you doubt me?" And it's like, why didn't you just do what we told you to do, Sonic? But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, he he means well, and I think he he does well as much as he can, but he's he's a little lazy in my eyes um, in, in some depictions that I've seen. For example, the um, the anime that came out in the 90s, he was he was really lazy. He wanted to hang out on the beach, you know, until he saw that um, Tails was going to, like, crash a plane into a mountain or something like that. Yeah, and I think that really is, like, that show particularly is a function of how characterization often works in anime. You know, I mean, like, there is a Western-Eastern kind of difference there, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think the version of Sonic that we're most used to seeing in America by American authors fits in that kind of Spider-Man superhero kind of characterization, where I think that, that yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it, things are very different in Japan. And I think, you know, people who know the history... You know, there's kind of traditionally been some tension around what the Sega of America team was doing in the in the late 90s and early 2000s versus now everything's completely originated in Japan. And um, uh, I think it's it, you know, it's not so much one side hates the other side or whatever. I think it's just different cultures express their values a little differently for sure. And I think there's also a level of ownership there. And yeah. I know, especially in Japanese uh, video game development, the reason why you don't see Sega releasing so many sequels is because they, those games were the original works of someone within the company. And it's, it's kind of disrespectful to just go off and start making sequels without either their approval or them working on it themselves. And so if, if say, you know, the guy who did jet set radio is doing something else at Sega, he doesn't want to make another jet set radio. You're not going to make another one. And I think with Sonic, no, yeah. there was this, this issue where, America really wanted to make money 
understandably so, and they made decisions that angered the Japanese. And I think that kind of stuck for many years. And we even now see that in the writer's room at IDW, um, is Takashi Azuka will be there, which, you know, we'd never seen in the Archie days. He wouldn't show up yeah. and go, you know, who is who is this like Mina the Mink rock band girl? Like, what's going on? What are you guys doing? And so it's, it's I mean, it has its ups, its advantages and its disadvantages, but... I think when, when it does work out, it definitely does work out for the best. Now, yeah. looking at the book, at so in Tales of Terror, the um, illustrator, I, I yeah. don't think you, did you have any input on that? I don't, I can't imagine. No, but it's, it's interesting because when I was writing the book, so like I said, Deception was, was kind of through the production process, and Ian McGinty, who did the cover for Terror, was doing the interior art on uh, um, uh, uh, the Deception book. And I know, I don't really know Ian personally, but like, again, I worked in comics for a long time and Ian has done a lot of comics. And so we have a lot of friends in general. I know his work really well. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, Ian's going to draw the book like that. Yeah, that's perfect. Like he can really do it. And at, at one point I talked to my editor who had kind of said, yeah, um, Ian's going to do the cover for your book. But, you know, he's really, strong. he does a lot of, he does a lot of comics. He does a lot of different work. And so I don't, I don't know. We might have to find somebody else to do the interior. And I was like, oh, and I was kind of bummed for a second. And then my editor was like, don't worry. Like, I'm going to find somebody really cool who could do something really cool with this. And I think he knew at the time that like, because Spaz, who everybody knows from, he drew the Archie book, you know, the early issue of the Archie book, a lot of those big epic stories. Um, if you don't know, he does a tremendous amount of these licensed books. Um, if you look at uh, 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 a lot of the Ninja Turtles books that came out for the last Nickelodeon reboot, not the Rise show, but the the one that um, uh, Ciro Nielli did, he did a ton of the art for those books. He, he's, I mean, he doesn't do comics as much anymore, um, but he does a ton of uh, these licensed kids books and superhero books and does a great job on all of them. And I and my editor, I think, was aware both of him as an illustrator because he's done books for Penguin before, but also I think he was aware of his history doing Sonic stuff. So that like, it came as a surprise to me, but I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just some accident that it ended up being uh, uh, Patrick Spaziani doing that book for sure. Yeah. Spaz is without a doubt, my favorite Sonic artist. I wrote to the Archie comics back in, I don't know when it was, but during one of the, the special issues they released and I made mention when they published my letter uh, to tell Spaz to keep up the fantastic work. He's my, you know, I, I love his stuff. And so to see him, not only he did um, the coloring book not too long ago, but to see him pop up in here, because I, you know, they don't put the names on the cover for yeah. these books. And so I was flipping through and I was like, this art's like really good. It looks like a different person though. And I looked and I was so surprised to see Spaz but now I know where he went because I've been looking for where his work has been since Archie <laughs> Comics ended. And it's great yeah. to see him doing Sonic again. One thing I really love about his stuff is that he's he's very much a Sega fanboy. Uh, back in the day, he would sneak in the most ridiculous cameos into the Sonic comics. Like there would be the uh, Japanese platformer Astal would just appear like a, a, a very obscure Sega Saturn character would just appear on the cover. And I'm looking in, in your book here and during the, um, the, the scene where they're all going submit, submit. <laughs> um, he snuck in characters that resemble bark and bean. And I think uh, one of the riders characters and kind of like a, 
some girl. I don't really know who she's supposed to be, but yeah, did you, yeah, but... Did you catch some of these references he did, visual references? Yeah, I knew. I mean, I yeah, I mean, like I I didn't know all of them. Like you said, yeah, some of them are kind of whatever. But I knew, like when I went through the book, because they sent me a copy of the book maybe about a month before it came out, and that was one of the things that I was really surprised by. Because when I, you know, when I wrote the the stories, my editor said, "Look, if you've got a specific image that you want drawn, you can say put it around here." And he said, "I might change that because I know how how the page is going to break out and where we're going to need illustrations on which pages." But if you have any suggestions, and I ended up doing very little of that. Um, Partially just because of the, the deadline, I needed to get the stories done, and I and I was working on making the, the text as good as I could get it. Uh, but partially because you know illustrators don't really like it when you're like you have to draw exactly this, you know. Right. Um, and so so that was one of the first things I did when I got the book. I was like, well, I know what happens in the story. I wrote them, but I, I wanted to see the art. And so yeah, I was able to just kind of pour over all the little details and all the things that he put in there for sure. That's very cool. I I was very surprised by that, and to see him drawing Big the Cat again is kind of <laughs> amusing. But yeah, if um, anyone listening to this hasn't checked out Spaz's work, because I know it's been a bit since he's done illustration for Sonic um, outside of this book, you can check this book out, obviously, Tales of Terror. And there's a lot of great cover galleries online. I know he did almost all the Sonic X covers, and he just went insane with those. It's not yeah. my favorite comic book, but it's definitely my favorite collection of covers, like the stuff mm -hmm. he did. With, he, he seemed to really like drawing Eggman wearing uh, El Luchadora um, Mexican wrestler <laughs> outfits. I don't know why, but he loved it. And he he would just keep drawing the stomach bigger and bigger until I think there's probably a point someone had to tell him, like, you're pushing it here. But, um, yeah, it's, it's great stuff. So looking back in this book then, um, you mentioned from the style guide that you would reference things that were in it. So... I see here the, I think it's called the Egg Dragoon. Yeah. Was that like a limitation so that Spaz or the any illustrator would not have to spend the time developing a new machine? Um, I think so. I think part of it, I mean, you know, one of the notes that I got back from uh, the folks in Japan was, um, so like as a different example, like in the story that I did, so the one story I did is, is almost a direct sequel to Unleashed. I know right. Unleashed kind of has like a, a mixed uh, a reputation among some of the fans, but I, I enjoyed that game. And I, you know, when I decided that I was going to do a, a kind of a horror themed Halloweeny kind of, kind of like a goosebumps version of Sonic version for this book, I knew I had to use the Werehog, you know, it was just like, it's too, it's too much of a classic horror concept that's already in the canon not to put in there. And so one of the notes I got back, for example, from, from Sega Japan was um, in the, the Werehog uh, story, um, uh, I create this kind of backpack for Tails because in the game, you know, you got to use like a, a, a camera to, uh, to flash on the, the people who get um, uh, possessed by these, these demons. But I was like, okay, well, now it's after the, the first game. They know that you need a flash. So why would he still just be carrying on a camera? Like Tails would build something. He would have a, a device. Mm -hmm. And the people in Japan were like, this is great. We love this idea. Like giving giving him a specific device to to fight creatures from the dark dimension is exactly what we want to see. And so, yeah, so some of the things it was like me just kind of going through, and I think the Dragoon was a particularly a thing where I was like, okay, I think that like this is a cool um, uh, uh, vehicle in general from the games, and it serves the purpose of the story I wanted to tell, where he's underground, and I, I wanted to tell this story about, um, you know, the, the trees being upset and make a ghost story out of, not like you know, like dead creatures, ghosts, but like kind of like forest spirits, a kind of a, 
uh, Hayao Mizaki, Princess mm-hmm. Mononoke thing in mm-hmm. my own little way, you know? And so I was like, okay, what, and, and if anytime you're writing a story like this, if you're like, what is in the lore that will accomplish the story goal I need? Right. Okay, the Dragoon is there. It, it can dig, it can get underground. Like, let's use that. Let's work that in. And so, it, yeah, so it's kind of a back and forth with Japan, but also like, I, I want it to feel like it's part of what's already there. You want people who know the lore to feel like, okay, this is just like when Spaz is working in those extra characters, right? Like you want people to say, all right, this, this fits, this makes sense. We know some of this stuff and some of it can be original. Some of it can be new, but if it's all brand new and original, it runs the risk of not feeling like it's part of what's come before. Mm. And I, I appreciate that because that's actually what I, when I do read the comics and, you know, I, I checked out books like this, I look for something like that. I, I'm a huge Canon continuity nerd and I really appreciated seeing, um, you know, the stories in your book just because it, you weren't afraid. Like I see Tails's lab here and it looks like the one from Sonic Adventure mm-hmm. um, and it's being referenced. And so it's, it just, so it's, I always felt like Sega could have done more with the past games and the stories that they were telling by combining elements like this, like Tails's lab and the werehog all in these sequel stories. Yeah. And I'll say they were very, like I said, they were very receptive. I think, you know, they want to, I, th- I feel like there's a tension where they're like, they want to be able to use as much of that as possible and like keep that stuff active. But then I think they want to give the game designers freedom to, to make something new. And so like, that's hopefully that's why books like this should exist. And mm-hmm. it's funny, you know, you mentioned like the, the, the very old back in the nineties when these things first came out and here's Eggman on a track or whatever. And it's like, I I've noticed since I started doing this in particular, but even in the past few years, it used to be that licensed books like this, were the bottom rung basement level of children's book publishing. It was like, okay, we know this is a brand. We know a little kid will buy this, but like, who cares? Like, like just put something out. And over the past decade, two decades, what have you, as online fandom has grown, as um, uh, different groups have gotten more into this stuff. And, you know, anybody who knows anything, I mean, I got a three-year-old daughter. So like I've watched an awful lot of my little pony this year, um, you know, but like that there are adult fans of this stuff. One guy who's a, a friend of mine who works in comics, um, who I, who I know pretty well is a guy named Kyle Higgins, who's been writing, um, the boom studios, power Rangers series. And one thing that he says about that series is he wanted to make a power Rangers story that was for older fans. It was no longer for 10 year olds, you know? Um, and publishers have started to notice this. They noticed that like, when they're making something that's based on a franchise, even if it's ostensibly a kid's franchise or a franchise that is all ages, that doesn't just mean hire somebody who doesn't know anything about it and let them hack it out, right? Mm -hmm. Penguin Workshop, who did these Sonic books, are very aware of that. They did a lot of Adventure Time books um, when that was still coming out, and they really wanted to to make it fit within the canon of Adventure Time, and they would hire people who knew and loved the show. And, and, you know, same thing through with when I told them, like I said, I told them, I love Sonic, and they're like, oh well, let's not let him just do this activity book. Like, let's get let's get him a story to do, you know? Right. And so that's happening across licensed books. That publishers are now starting to know that if they don't get the canon right, that if they don't make something that has that additive value, it's not going to be a success. You can't half-ass it anymore. And so um, that's and that's a position, cool position for me to be in as a writer because um, you know I can search out and find things that I enjoy or that my kid enjoys or what have you, and say, hey, I'm a fan of this. 
And that goes a long way in terms of getting me work because they're looking for people who are fans of to do it. Yeah. And it'll just a little extra effort on the publisher and the writer's part goes a long way. Like as evidenced, I wouldn't be talking to you if you didn't put in a little extra effort for something that I, as a uh, 30 something year old would enjoy, you know, I, I'll admit I don't pour over these books, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up and read the uh, Werehog story and be like, oh, that's cool. That's a nice little nod from something 10 years ago. Yeah. And so um, the next question I want to ask, so what sort of game or games, what sort of projects do you have in the future? Oh man! So um, uh, I for stuff that just came out. Um, uh, this is the other side of the video game world. But just last week, um, I had a, a book come out um, based on Halo um, through Scholastic, not from Penguin. Um, that was really an interesting project because it is an in-universe guidebook. It's the Spartan Field Manual, and so it was really interesting because I wrote that. I I did a lot of stuff in consultation with Microsoft and the three four three Game Studio guys, and I did like a big draft of that. And then uh, kind of hilariously and fine by me because it was like less rewriting work I had to do. After my initial draft was turned in, somebody higher up the chain at Microsoft was like, wait, they did this with that book? Well, we can't reveal that. We can't do that. <laughs> so certain things. So, But the way they fixed that was one of the head game writers, a guy named Kenneth Peters came in and he um, pretty much took my initial draft and he did the edit on it and then added certain things in and added certain characters in that he knew they'd be able to put in there without without giving anything too much away. So it ended up making the book a lot cooler because if you're a Halo person, it's not just me, a random guy, like like studying the Halo franchise and trying to do a cool book, but it's it's me setting the, the kind of template and then one of the lead game writers coming in and making sure that it really fits the canon. So um, that just came out, like I said, like when we recorded this, it just came out like last week. Um, Future-wise, um, I've got a couple projects in the works that aren't 100% set in stone. Um, I'm working on an original graphic novel uh, that is hopefully uh, going to come out uh, sometime next year from a publisher called Learner Books. But is I'm, I'm originally from Flint, Michigan, and it is a kind of um, Mighty Ducks, Bad News Bears-esque <laughs> story of a, of a loser junior hockey team in Flint in the 80s. Um, is something I'm working on and I am working on doing more. Uh, I have a couple things that I can't mention yet, but I'm doing working on doing more of these kind of licensed books, hopefully some more Sonic stuff in the future. Uh, I don't want to over commit myself because I haven't been hired to do this stuff yet, but um, Joe Hughes, who's the editor of the IDW comics and I have talked mm. and I've let him know that I really want to do some of the comic stuff. Obviously Ian Flynn does the main scripts, uh, but they're occasionally they do spinoff stuff. One of my very good friends in comics is a guy named Caleb Goldner, uh, who some people might know. He just did um, the Sonic comic from IDW that's a tie-in to the new um, racing game. Uh, um, and so, like, it was funny because I was talking to Joe about, like, hey, I've been doing these Sonic books. I know the canon. Like, I know Ian's doing it. But if you need people, if you need people to pitch, like, let me know. And Joe's like, yeah, like, you know, we'll, we'll talk when, when something becomes available. And then at one point I talked to Caleb and Caleb was like, and Caleb is a guy who, his first comic book in life. He works in comics for years and he's d written a bunch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle stuff, but his first comic book as a kid was the Archie Sonic comic. And then I kind of was like saying to Joe, like, Joe, I really want to write a Sonic comic, but you can't hire me for something before you hire Caleb. So, you know, <laughs> like, so Caleb has done now this racing comic and I'm, I'm hoping that um, if more opportunities, if IDW decides to do more stuff outside of Ian's series, that I'll be able to pitch it and do that. And um, I'm actually going, again, I don't know when you're going to post this on the site, 
but this weekend uh, is the New York Comic Con, and I'm going there, and I've got meetings with some editors at Scholastic and at Penguin and a couple other places to talk about some projects. So, uh, you know, it's the freelance life, man. You you, you put out as many, uh, uh, cast as many uh, rods out there as you can and try to get somebody to bite. And so hopefully I'll have some more stuff that's actually on the slate and announced within the next six months or so. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm really hoping you get some IDW gigs. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. And like, you know, it's one of those things where Joe is a guy I've known a long time. And so when you're pitching an editor, you never want to be like over aggressive. And when you're pitching an editor, you know, as a friend basis, you're like, like, I know that like, if Joe finds something that he can use me for, he'll call me. I know I don't have to keep bugging about that, but I also have to be open to the fact that like, maybe a gig won't open up and that's not Joe's fault or anybody's fault, but that's just you know, there's a lot of different people who have a say in how many of these things get published. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I got, I got my hat in the ring and uh, we'll see what shakes out. Yeah. Fingers crossed. The great, the great thing about IDW is they love doing those one-offs and those mini series. Um, my favorite that they did was Biff to the future with the back to the future comics. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I mean, even if you can pitch something where it's like a shadow comic or a chaotix one shot, you know, you never know. Yeah. Cool. So um, before we go, I just wanted to uh, direct people to you. You're on social media. It's uh, your name. On Twitter. Yeah, my name, which is spelled weird, K-I-E-L-P-H-E-G-L-E-Y. But it's just at Kyle Fegley at, uh, on, on Twitter is my is the best spot to find me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, hey, IDW follows you. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a mutual friend of ours, too. Hey, look, Adam Tuff from Sonic Stadium. Um, and... They can keep an eye out for your future projects. And I also wanted to ask, we talked via email. Are you willing to do like a giveaway? Um, yeah, totally. I've got some copies. Uh, I, I can give you no more than an exciting autograph. I'm not an artist, but uh, 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 if uh, if we want to do that, then uh, we'll see. You know, take point on that, Barry, and let people know however you want to do the selection of folks. But I will definitely uh, send stuff on to anybody who uh, wins the chance of of my messy signature. Cool. Yeah, we can work that out offline. I'm thinking maybe share this show on social media or something like that. So, um, yeah, we'll work that out. And again, thank you so much for speaking with me. I'm looking forward to your future projects. Yeah, man. Yeah, and uh, we always do outro music. And in this case, it's hard to do music from a book. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll just have to... So is there a Sonic song that you'd you'd love to have playing us out right now? It's definitely, it's got to be any of the themes from uh, from the first couple games because those are what's etched in my brain. Maybe like maybe like a chemical plant zone or get a little funky with it, but for Done. sure. Done. That's my favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> of SegaBits. SegaBits is a fan site that is not in any way officially affiliated with Sega. Sonic the Hedgehog and all Sega-related trademarks are copyright Sega. All other featured trademarks are the property of their respective owners. Don't forget to check out SegaBits.com and you can find us on all major social networks. Just search SegaBits. Okay.